Greetings. What you're about to hear is episode one of an interview that I did with Douglas Lane over on his Great Zero Books podcast. He provoked me on Twitter. He provoked me personally. He reached out to me and said, hey, Adam. Hey, Adam, fuck you. No, he didn't do that. He put out a tweet. Uh, actually, it was a video that he put up on YouTube and he tweeted about it. And the video had a very provocative title. It was called something like Bernie Sanders was a mistake. Now we're going to narrate how that went down at the opening of this interview. But of course, you know, that was triggering for me. You guys know that that was triggering for me because as a committed democratic socialist, I both understand and recognize the limitations and contradictions entailed by the Bernie Sanders project. And I am also just a diehard stan at the same time. Contradiction requires a both and, doesn't it? And so, of course, a video like that, I was going to be triggered by. And so I responded and I said, Doug, I think you're dead wrong. This is a dumb video. Uh, I still love you, bro. And I'm happy to come on your show at some point and explain why. And so that's what we did. And um, you guys are going to hear me in a very chatty, overly caffeinated mode where we are sparring, debating, talking over one another, which is something that I try not to do here on DPS as the host. I try to give my my guests <laughs> the final say and the ability to speak uh, the most. So here, you know, on, on Doug Lane's podcast, I had the opportunity to just run off my mouth for like two hours. And this is the first hour. This is episode one. Um, you guys should definitely support Zero Books. If you guys are not listeners already, go ahead and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. They do important work, even though I don't always agree with what they say. They are necessary sparring partners and they're good guys. You know, they're good guys. Uh, episode two is going to be appearing for patrons probably tomorrow on the DPS feed. So if you are not a patron of DPS, head over to patreon.com slash dead pundits and support this work. And additionally, of course, if you are already a patron of Zero Books, you have access to the Parrot Room on YouTube and I believe their um, podcast feed, subscriber-only podcast feed. So you should you should support them as well. Um, it is thanks to the generosity of Doug that this is airing for DPS folks here on this feed. So do him a solid and give him a follow, a like, a subscribe, a fave, all that good shit. Doug is going to be coming on DPS here in the coming weeks to kind of respond. We're going to do a, a tit for tat. If you will, I spent two hours talking over him and I'm going to give him the opportunity to talk over me on DPS. Tis only fair, comrades. All right. Please enjoy this interview and I hope that you guys are having a reasonably okay time eating hot dogs, watching fireworks. If you are an American, uh, there's nothing wrong with celebrating the 4th of July. Don't be a dour, uh, you know, a, a, a pouty socialist on July 4th. Enjoy it, right? Yeah, sure. The capitalist class, American imperialism, it's all shit. It's all shit. But just get together with your family and your friends and, and, uh, and embrace that pure sociality that emerges when you're, you're cooking out and eating food over a grill and drinking entirely too many alcoholic beverages, perhaps some of you. So nurse that hangover. Enjoy the interview. We'll be back real soon with part two for the patrons. The death of God is about the drying up of a horizon of meaning and of a whole form of human life. Where do we stand in the illusion it makes? What kind of space are we invited into? The material relations between people become social relations between things. When we look at toasters, corn, and TVs, we don't we see... We still, them. to a large extent, live in the interregnum between 
between worlds, if you will, or between paradigms. Not many people in the history of the world have faced that. Zero Squared is the Zero Books podcast. Adam, you came on for this particular uh, podcast. We should do it more often to set yeah. me straight. I put out a video called, uh, what was it called? It was uh, originally called, Can We Transform Capitalism into Socialism? That got no clicks at all uh, or was very didn't get very much traction right away. So I changed the title to uh, Supporting Bernie Sanders Was a Mistake. And that... <laughs> Now is at around eleven thousand views, but but Flex. the trade off was I lost some subscribers. Um, yeah, so like I only gained like three subscribers in the end uh, in that <clears throat> churn. Um, but I, I don't I I do think like I don't feel passionately about uh, that position that supporting Bernie Sanders was a mistake. I don't think that I have a vision of what we should have done, but I was uh, but I feel as though. We have to re-examine what it means to work for socialism, and right. one of the the things we have to say is that we supporting bourgeois parties and um, uh, trying to perfect the capitalist system as it is, or or trying to perfect capitalism into something more human. That has has got to be abandoned. Is is tempting as it often is. Um, so that's that's where I'll start, and now I'll let you. I'll let you talk. And correct me. Start oh, thank to correct you. me. Thank you. Uh, we've got it. We've got two Marxian political economy nerds in the house, and so I think we can really peel it back and maybe get a little bit abstract and kind of lay some groundwork. And one of the ways that I would like to get into this question would be really interesting and fascinating to get your viewpoints on this because I think we we differ in terms of strategy and analysis here, which is really fascinating for me as the host of Dead Pundit Society to kind of get to the root of stuff with other other thought leaders such as yourself. <laughs> Uh, yeah. people who you know, we're gonna have, have to talk about reach. thought leaders later on maybe in the second half yeah, we, we should will. talk about what the fuck is a thought leader but go ahead we will i know i, I always say that tongue-in-cheek it's kind of funny uh, my mm -hmm. thoughts don't lead anything or anybody i'm not even sure what i think half the time i've tried to mm -hmm. be open and, and uh exercise humility as much as possible i hope that'll come across in this conversation i'm brash yeah. on twitter but aren't we all um mm -hmm. uh so you know Here's here's a provocation I want to start with, and it's really general and, and kind of broad, but I think it'll be really effective. I'm under the impression that, okay, let, let's let's uh, check some suppositions first. Marxism fundamentally is is concerned with the self emancipation of the working class. Can we? I mean, mm -hmm. that's that's a true. That's I, a fact. I think yeah. I think it's a it's fundamentally concerned with the self transcendence of the working class. Right. Not just sure. the, so, and right. which would mean that if they were fully emancipated, that class would disappear. There wouldn't be right. no so, class. Right. I'm with you on that. I think that's a really important because you, know, you have to escape the the uh, confines of workerism, right? Um, mm -hmm. Fetishizing and, and kind of um, ontologizing the class such that you can't it, it can't abolish itself. Abolishing capitalism, it's in essence abolishing itself. Mm -hmm. um, so the self-emancipation, the self-transcendence, therefore, of the working class. So in my estimation, that every single Every single attempt to um, institute a Marxian kind of analysis of capitalism or feudal society or whatever else um, has been on those terms in, imbued with a certain kind of ideological claim. The ideological claims that this is the self-emancipation of the working class. Whether it's the Soviet experiment, whether it's Mondragon, whether it's uh, the, the Sander rights, you know, or whomever. It's, an, it's fundamentally an ideological claim because 
there are always institutions and actors and organizations and parties um, who are making that claim on behalf of a collective, the working class. Mm-hmm. And so in essence, it's, we're always already ideological as soon as we start making Marxian claims. Um, and so therefore, for me, my version of democratic socialism tries to be as open and as upfront about the ideological nature of our claims as Marxists and socialists as possible. And therefore, at the outset, uh, making very kind of passionate moves, you know, in favor of Bernie Sanders, for example, in favor of that movement that coalesced around Bernie Sanders starting in 2016 and beyond. But all the while understanding that 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 those claims entail a contradiction, which is that if we are to be truly Marxist, we're claiming to hold the banner of socialism that is necessarily, therefore, the self-emancipation of the working class. We are actually advocating for various institutions and actors and organizations to be surrogates in that process. And I think the sooner that the left can get really I'm, – I'm shaking my computer because I'm gesticulating, comrade. Uh, <laughs> what kind of socialist would I be? Let's, we'll do that together. Come on. All right. Here we go. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so what kind of so, – so being really open and upfront and honest about that. And so I guess I'm trying to get a little bit more meta than perhaps the more clickbaity, admittedly clickbaity question that you uh, provoked me with on your YouTube uh, uh, channel. But any thoughts that kind of come from that? And am I on? I mean, are we in, in I, I, Okay, let me just about, let's 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 that. talk about the word ideology for a moment, because there sure. are a couple of different ways that that term can be used. And one of the ways in which it can be used is the kind of uh, explanation or set of assumptions that uh, uh, is picked up um, to justify current conditions, like the ruling mm-hmm. class ideology or a false consciousness is another way sure. to think of it. Um, the other thing way to think about ideology is any set of explanations um, or ex- any set of uh, or, or any attempt at an explanation for any given condition or, or event or, or uh, experience. Um, so, you know, in a way, the theory of gravity is an ideology because sure, it has sure. a it's a it's a set of explanations. Um, it's a framework. It's an ideational framework that's being imposed on a set of material phenomena that always kind right. of uh, are sort of escape any attempt to capture them with language and narrative. And right. Sure. So <clears throat> that second definition is what I would prefer to talk about. Um, it's more challenging because then you have to get into uh, the nitty gritty, and you have to, and there's and the history of Marxist ideologies is dense. I mean, it's very. It's it's a it, you can spend your whole life <clears throat> trying to grasp the entirety of the different ideologies that have emerged through the, the Marxist struggle. <clears throat> but I would say that there are a few things that we can notice about Marxist ideology is which is that the one thing is that the practice of the political parties or internationals and the underlying ideology have not always been lined up, but no one's ever fully worked out how to take the Marxist theory and put it into political practice. Um, <clears throat> I remember reading an, an, an essay about the Bernstein Kautsky Luxembourg debates around mm-hmm. revisionism at the turn of the 20th century, around the late 19th, early 20th century. And the essayist, and I forget who it was, said, while Kautsky won the theoretical debate, Bernstein won the political debate. After that, 
every every everything that was actually put into practice fit with Bernstein's theory and not Kautsky's. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> so so what was that? Well, that was the idea that um, there was a parliamentary road to socialism, that capitalism itself had uh, not only contradictions in it, which would lead to a rupture or to a transcendence, but also that could be evolved into socialism, that um, the concentration of capital uh, would maybe lead to one big factory, as an example. I mean, I'm not quoting Bernstein here, but there are these sort of general ideas of what socialism was and how we could get there through capitalist development. <clears throat> right. And to state, I mean, to, to let's to, let's steal man Bernstein here, as your yeah. editor over at Current Affairs would say. Um, <laughs> you're sometimes editor uh, or friend, I should say. Um, Bur- Burgess, you, you're talking about Ben Burgess, uh, that, Nathan uh, Robinson, actually. Oh, Nathan, I, believe no, Nathan, he, I believe I've never written for Nathan. With that? No, I've okay. never written for Nathan. No, I've never written for Nathan. Um, so we'll steal so, man. Like, is it, actually, you know, I'm not sure that Nathan is owed that. Somebody is owed that, but I love it because you know the straw man is the one we people throw around on Twitter and get really upset about. That's a straw man, sir. And it's like yeah, steel manning steal is man. a good thing. Yeah, we got to steal yeah, man let's, things. Let's steal man Bernstein. I think that his understanding of of that that projection was also based in the way that the franchise was being extended to the working class for the first time in the capitalist state. And and to be a little bit more sympathetic to where he was in that moment in that position, it was really unprecedented. I think you know the you know the, the American context is a very poor context historically to understand the enfranchisement of of humanity, particularly the working class, because we got it very early. It's very weird, and it was it was entirely <laughs> due to the uh, racial anxieties of the slaveholding South. And their industrial counterparts in the north who depended on them for their supply chains. And so it's a real historical um, anomaly grounded in chattel slavery and in the certain kind of political economic you know, complexities and intricacies of the United States' history. But when 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 the enfranchisement of the working class was was fought for and won in 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 the you know really the, the 19th century in, in a real meaningful sense. I mean, you know, people had to fight. I mean, Paris Commune, you know, uh, tens if not hundreds of thousands of working class people just mowed down in the wake of these failed attempts. Uh, P- the Peterloo Massacre in 1820. Somebody's going to, uh, fo- I've got Percy Bishy Shelley's uh, account of that uh, tattooed on my arm, so I should know better. But through through the 1800s, 19th century, you just see the, just a massacring of working class uh, populations that are begging for the, the franchise. And so let's historically that and really get to the, the revolutionary roots of the franchise um, in the late 19th and early 20th century that Bernstein, Bernstein and, and his co-counterparts co- were reacting to, and Kautsky later in his career too. Uh, they were seeing this as the, the, the heritage of a revolutionary, a truly revolutionary history. Uh, the outcome of the Paris Commune and the demands that were put forward uh, and the blood that was shed. So let's contextualize this a little bit more, I think. Well, don't, don't, we have um, to, don't we have to look at all of that early 19th century struggle uh, up to and after 1848 as part of a bourgeois revolution to um, break with autocratic regimes and develop par- a parliamentary form? Of republicanism, um, right. and to develop and to develop nation states against the 
empires that had been absolutely absolutely and mark saw that very clearly and made various kind of uh, uh corrections course corrections over time infamously after the paris commune you know the famous uh you know takeaway from that being that you can't just lay your hands on the state machinery you have to abolish it entirely but then it, that even then like all of these things what i'm trying to get at entail contradictions even marx's understanding of, of, of what happened in the 1870s entails the contradiction that you don't just abolish the state first you have to somehow vie for it and win it. Um, and, and so all of this is just to say that, you know, there are fundamental contradictions in all of this. And we and, and we can't sort of uh, do away with those contradictions by sort of staking out, you know, one side in opposition to the other, when in the moment, it's always kind of uncertain uh, which way, if any way at all, something's going to turn or something's going to go. I mean, so that's just, just to put a Bernstein into a little bit of, of context. But, but the most important contribution that he made there, and I think that Kautsky was trying to, to make in his, you know, infamous kind of um, back and forth uh, with, with Lenin, uh, it was really a one-sided uh, diss track laid down by Lenin really there, um, was that Kautsky was grappling with something that Marx didn't live long enough to grapple with, which is the truly modern, the truly contemporary capitalist state in the way that, that states were, were incorporating all of the populations, including the working classes, the, the, the formerly disenfranchised, the formerly former underclasses, uh, the petty thieves and criminals and beggars and, uh, you know, small time agriculturers and all the rest of it. This was a modern contemporary capitalist state system that was all of a sudden taking responsibility in a very limited and shitty way. But nonetheless, rhetorically anyway, and, and, and look at Bismarck's, uh, Bismarck's, you know, reforms. Clearly nothing socialist in, in that package in terms of how they were won or what they really accounted for. But it was a modernization of the capitalist state in such a way that Marx, like I said, never got a chance to really grapple with. And we can only wish that he did so. But but this was what Kautsky was trying to grapple with. And this is what Bernstein was trying to grapple with. What does it mean to have a party of the working class in a fully enfranchised working class in a capitalist, modern capitalist state that that can that has capacities to, to do things that, that various working class communes never dreamed of. Right. And so, so they're, they're kind of looking at these innovations and kind of licking their chops on the one hand, but on the other hand, also acknowledging that like there are a lot of dangers entailed here, much the same way that Marx looked at technology. I mean, Marx was obsessed with new technology. He thought that this, you know, on the one hand, this holds the key to our emancipation, you know, the death of the end of toil. On the other hand, these could absolutely, you know, people are becoming, uh, uh, you know, uh, chained to these machines. Yeah. Uh, which <clears throat> lowering little- us below the level of the machine in some ways, right. in some uh, mm-hmm. you know, aspects of the working class in Manchester and elsewhere that Engels documented so well. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, maybe some contextual stuff there that I think I'm going to need to explain. Right. No, like, I, yeah, I, I'm not, I'm not bashing Bernstein. I'm just saying that's, that was the no well, we should we should bash bernstein a little bit <laughs> well, right. but, but when i bring that yeah. that up particular fact up um so the question is i mean I, and i believe that in the soviet union when lenin took power lenin was thinking of his immediate task as the the, the development of a working class and the development of capital and the industrialization of of russia and the and to and the smashing of all of the autocratic uh, remnants that were left in in the in the uh, state, um, and not the uh, creation of uh, even some sort of transitionary socialism, which I think is a debatable whether socialism and communism are really different. Um, rather, he thought he was getting 
Russia prepared for what would be a world revolution as Europe uh, and, and the European working class took power, mm-hmm. um, which was not insane in, in, in 1970. Very practical. Very yeah. Practical. So look at the um, ruling class organs, uh, the, the, commu- the communications happening across state lines amongst ruling classes and monarchies. They were wetting themselves over that prospect. Yeah. Right. But, but okay. So th- once we realize that that was the plan and then we can look and see and, and see all the various ways in which that went wrong. Um, and primarily with the failure of the German revolution, but then, you know, also the, failures that happened in the Soviet Union, we have to start to ask ourselves, so what part of this, uh, of these assumptions, wh- which of these assumptions were in error or which, w- how can we reconceive of this project today? And I think um, the, the, the first thing to note is that when you support someone like Bernie Sanders, you are not even doing uh, what Bernstein was advocating for you're not you don't have an aim at creating uh an international uh state and uh you're not trying to uh expand uh and speed up the production of uh, the concentration of capital um you don't have uh, a revolutionary moment in other parts of the world what you're what you're doing is uh really trying to return to something altogether different which would be the old new deal uh, days of of the welfare state state and Fordism at, at best, and that's just um, which were not um, socialist proposals. They were mm-hmm. actually opposed by the Socialists of America at the time, or the at least FDR was opposed, and the in the New Deal in, in a broad sense was opposed. And you can read Paul Maddox's critique of the New Deal. <clears throat> to see why from sure. a socialist perspective but I, I, so okay I, I, all that's well taken i'm not sure paul maddock is a great representative of of the socialists and communists in the 1930s M- many socialists and communists were very nervously and in a like in a very self-aware sense uh supportive of the broad swath of um kind of state capacities that were promoted and produced by the new deal because they saw these as opportunities not only to put food in the mouths of starving kids with ringworm in the south and to emancipate black workers who were you know still in various forms of bondage you know legally or otherwise um but they did see this as as an exciting opportunity but they were i think it's accurate to say yes they were absolutely weary of FDR, but I wouldn't say that they were across the board uh, hostile or um, adversarial no, no, in the but, way that you might suggest. But nonetheless, the socialist of, um, socialists of America opposed the New Deal, um, and mm-hmm. Maddock had a very, I think, interesting critique of the New Deal, which we should we shouldn't ignore. Which aspects? I mean, was but, a but let's put seriously. I'll give you an example. The the, Act? We're socialists against the Wagner Act because I seriously doubt no, it. No, no, I mean, it was this, this it was, was a, you know uh, the, which which aspects of the New Deal that you're what, talking what about. I, what I remember is the the work programs and the aid packages mm-hmm. in conjunction creating scabs for real sure. for real sure. employees. So you had mm-hmm. this great this high, this kind of gradation of wages and therefore a gradation of survival, um, which then disciplined the working class even as they were trying to organize for their own power into accepting the terms that capital was giving them because each individual person could say, okay, well, right now I'm just barely subsisting on aid from the state, but I could get one of these uh, state jobs, 
which sure they don't pay a full wage, but it's a step up. And so sure. I, rather than rock the boat, I'm going to have this aspiration. Um, <clears throat> so it broke up, it fragmented the working class uh, uh, along these lines as to who was getting what kind of employment. And uh, that was, that's just one example from the Maddox essay that I read recently uh, critiquing the new deal. Um, <clears throat> the the point is that quarrel with some of that, but maybe we can bookmark that. I don't want to get you. Yeah, off I wanna, yeah, I wanna, the, the point is that we have to not be afraid of critiquing what seems like the, the limit of the horizon of possibility for the left today. And, and, and uh, including, you know, things that on their, on the surface sound radical, like, okay, for instance, we shouldn't be afraid of critiquing the idea of a minimum wage. Okay. Because they're, well, for one thing, uh, the wage is only meaningful in relationship to the total value of commodities and, and prices. So you, you can have an increase in your wage and through inflation, it actually end up being a, a decrease. You know, you actually paid less in real terms, but you're paying. You're not making a neoclassical argument that the rise in a minimum wage inevitably leads to inflation, which then stamps out wage gains from the the hike in a minimum wage. I'm not saying that it inevitably does anything. I'm just saying there's nothing guaranteed about a minimum wage that will empower the working class. I'm not saying there is a bundle. I mean, let's take this from a Marxian perspective. There's a bundle of socially kind of necessary mandated goods. And as Marx writes in the Grundrisse in Capital Volume One, this is something that he actually. You know, and in a very quantitative and very seriously scientific uh, treatment of this stuff, he even a- acknowledges that this is a socially – Marx almost never does this, right? He says that bundle of ex- expected wage goods is a socially mediated quantity. Uh, uh, it, it's grounded in kind of the – how much shit are you willing to take? What are you going to demand? Right. Uh, whereas one working class and one national context, you know, demands, you know, the uh, eggs and bread. Another will, will, will riot if, if the bosses take away their, you know, four hour lunch break. Right. So, right. so th- there's a, there's a, so even Marx understands this kind of uh, minimum package of sub substance, uh, culturally mediated subsistence is, is a, in short, in a word, it's a product of class struggle. And sure, so you, but the, you know, to, okay, but the, what gets the wage is minimum not, wage as where the minimum wage sits is the product of class struggle, and so to, to my mind, I you know I don't I don't know if it's appropriate from a Marxian perspective to write it off as 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 you know um, just another well it's just another wage and wage is by ne- by definition theft. I'm not saying that the struggle for the minimum wage shouldn't be taken up. I'm saying mm-hmm. we have to be open to cr- critiques of it and be serious right. about those critiques of it. And so let me just. Totally. Say this about about the what you're saying about Marx is saying the wage is socially mediated. He does say that, but he mm-hmm. also says that before the working class can even emerge, there has to be enough productivity so that the, the commodity price of consumer goods for the working class is has uh, is less than the than the amount of value those workers produce. Sure. Okay. All right. So. There's a, a, I mean, there's a, to me, that's a moment of like primitive accumulation in the development of, of capitalism, though, isn't it? it was, it's a moment of development of capitalism, not primitive accumulation. Right. It's okay. a, a moment of where you have enough well, disenfranchisement. Uh, is it in disenfranchisement, of enough of a working class to produce mm-hmm. the commodity goods or, or enough cheap enough commodity goods that you can sustain a working class and mm-hmm. in a profitable way. OK, so what that also means is that. Yeah, those what's considered to be a minimum wage or a living wage 
is different in different historical moments, but that what makes it different is not just the demands of the workers, but also sure. the price of production. Oh, absolutely. And, right. Okay. So, and which global competition, to, you know, you see the, the, when, when the productive capacities of Europe are, are burnt to the ground, you see a lot more space in, in the capitalist system to grant workers higher wages following world war two in the United States and even abroad in some places. So sure. There's absolutely, there's more, I mean, you know, classical neoclassical commerce would call this some form of slack. There's slack in the system to be pulled in one direction or the other. That's what slack is. Right. Right. Um, it can be so pulled like, so in, right in the now, direction of the workers or pulled in the, in the direction of capital. You know, following so right, the, the pandemic, I'm seeing a $500 signing bonus for dishwashers. There is right, slack exactly. in the system for so, workers so the to right, grab onto. So now we have to ask ourselves, okay, so what, what? how is it the case that the wages are going up, upwards past the $15 minimum wage for what were minimum wage jobs in many places, not across the board, uh, uh, you know, even as the political project for the minimum wage has failed? What, how, how is it that capitalism itself is ahead of meeting the demands of working class people than the, than the DSA and the squad and Bernie Sanders? Why is that the case? And then also, like, what does this tell us about those kinds of economic demands, strictly economic demands, um, and their effectiveness when mm -hmm. that happens? I'm, and I'm not saying, again, that the, the struggle for the minimum wage can't be a radical struggle for workers' power. I'm just saying it can't be on its own. It can't be sure. the horizon. And often enough, when you are supporting shifting the consciousness or the practices of a bourgeois party, that that it, those kinds of things become the horizon and actually are never accomplished by the party. So mm -hmm. that. So that would be there, there, there's a lot, lot, lot there. And I'm really glad uh, that you sort of grounded it that way, because I to me, I'm I don't know, maybe I'm just uh, uh, intolerable as a debate partner because I need everything to be grounded. And, you know, I'm, I'm a proper <laughs> Marxian that way. Uh, yeah. But I like the way you grounded that. And so you raise a number of, of issues. The first issue being uh, the one thing I wanted to get back to, which is another fundamental contradiction that Marx absolutely understood, which is that this is going to sound heretical for a Marxist or a socialist to even say anywhere and even even to himself in a prayer before bed at night, uh, <laughs> which is praying that, is heretical right there. You're that's not heretical. To pray. Right. Well, no, I'm praying to I'm, uh, Marx right across the sign across the sickle and the hammer. And yeah. I'm not yeah. that good of an artist. Um, is that, is that Marx understood that, you know, uh, he got a lot of trouble for this. You know, what do you say about the, the feudal system? Peasant life is, is brutish and dumb or something to that effect. And a lot of people, you know, took a, a lot of offense to that. Like, how dare you, sir? They have forms of knowledge and they deserve their respect. And it's like, no, 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 no. He was suggesting that the way that peasant laborers are produced it limits their horizon of understanding about their situation, about their connection with others, about their shared um, um, place in a, in a larger kind of national and even international uh, political economy. They just the, the, the system doesn't show them what they need to see about themselves for them to understand their place in the political economy. And, well, the other thing about a feudal, feudal subsistence farmer. Home. Is that they actually aren't part of a network of distribution? Right. They, they are separated. They are functionally yeah. separated. They don't have their their hands on the on the levers in the way that workers do in an industrial capitalist economy. And so, right. so, but there's a similar you know similar remarks to be said about about you know when Engels went to Manchester and when Marx read Engels on Manchester, who was by the way hit Marx's authority on this stuff in a lot of ways. Um, you know, he discovered very similar things that on the one hand, again, going back to the fundamental contradiction that we opened up with, that 
socialism, certainly under a Marxian perspective, not a Fabian or other forms of socialism, but Marxian socialism requires some version of the self-emancipation of the working class. And yet, which is my favorite phrase because that entails a contradiction, and yet capitalism produces across the board anyway, if left to its own devices, a, a working class that is very um, self-interested, um, if not influenced by other institutions, organizations, and movements, uh, very self-interested in kind of narrow economic objectives, such mm -hmm. as increasing their wage, such as responding to the direct imperatives of the capitalist system as it occurs in that historical moment, which is exactly what, you know, and so, so that's the first contradiction. You know, and this is one that DSA has to wrestle with, and they know they're wrestling with this. Um, every organization has to. The, the, Corbyn's Labor Party at the time, Momentum, you know, they're sort of really licking their wounds here. And everyone's just sort of saying, aha, well, I figured it out, comrades. Here's the problem. The problem is that we aren't workers enough. We're the PMC. And or, or it's never weeds because people never take accountability for that. Right. It's they're the PMC and, and they they fucked us, Doug. Can I curse on this platform? As yeah, yeah, yeah. Access? No, no, they you're fine. This, you're... Doug. Okay. And uh, and so and so, um, but but Marx knew this. Marx was a you know a, a PhD dropout, effectively, or whatever. Who who uh, in his day anyway it was a little more intense than getting your dissertation. Uh, was a PhD dropout who was a layabout and, uh, and you know a scholar and and was a little bit precious and fragile and had uh, boils in his ass and never worked in a factory and so. He himself understood the contradiction entailed even in the first international that these are representatives of the working class and not the working class itself because capitalism produces workers across the board that are illiterate, that are uh, um, superstitious, that are subject to all of the whims of, of capitalist culture. And it's gotten even worse now. And so, you know, so the, there's a real contra contradiction there, which, which brings me to the, your, your second most provocative and interesting point, which is why is it that the, the demands of capital right now are in some cases superseding the demands of the left? And that's because class has to be made. This is one of the fundamental challenges of, of, of Marxian political thought and, and socialists today, both together, because, uh, on the one hand, we understand that Marx's capital was just an abstract assessment of the capitalist mode of production. Um, it's, it's abstract in the sense that he's talking about that, that ab capital in the abstract produces a set of classes in the abstract that have these relations and connections in the abstract uh, and value is produced in the abstract. Um, and in, his, in an historically kind of mediated, grounded sense, class has to be made. And I'm not always team E.P. Thompson, so you're catching me in a rare moment here, Doug. But, you know, E.P. Thompson's The Making of the English Working Class is a masterful kind of attempt to understand how a class of a certain historical, uh, you know, conjuncture was made and has to be made conscientiously um, in, in ways that, uh, you know, are sometimes outside of the kind of demands of capital and sometimes coincide with that and then sometimes kind of lag behind or 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 move in advance of capital. And so, you know, I guess. This to me is one of the most fundamental issues that I have with your rejection of the Sanders movement and all the rest of it. I look at the Sanders movement in, in an incredibly pockmarked, contradictory, uh, partial uh, attempt to to create a class in the wreckage of the historical defeat of the working class coming out of the 1970s to, to reform and refound and reground some understanding of what a, 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 an historical working class is going to look like in contemporary terms. Uh, to move forward. And so you're right. It, 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 it lacks almost all of the, the, the things that Bernstein and his counterparts, uh, 
you know, took advantage of and in many instances took for granted coming out of the revolutionary 19, 19th century. But uh, but that's just to say that, in yeah, I mean, we look at Bernstein like he was, a, you know, like a like a like a fuck up with shit on his shoes, you know, and if only he knew this, like we are so much smarter than him. But we got it way worse at this point. Yeah, we I got it with- way worse. I agree. We, with you. Let's we are, talk about we are the light argument. years behind where where the the second international was oh, when yeah. they failed, you know, miserably. Uh, we're not even there. Uh, right. We don't even deserve to be put on the same uh, uh, bookshelf in terms well, of assessing our moment where we are right now. Let's not let's not unfairly but, judge ourselves. We can but, uh, we can. Put, I, I want to be on the same bookshelf. That we want, know better. I want, like we know better, Doug. We of course this we book know better. Belongs on the same bookshelf with those guys. I, I, it, it's a science fiction novel. I, I understand it would be miscategorized, but nonetheless. Oh, I don't okay. mean in terms of thought. I don't mean I don't mean in terms of complexity just, of thought. I mean I'm what we've joking. achieved. Yeah, what I'm we've just, achieved in our lives. Like look at all I've achieved. Failures. Uh, all right, here's uh, what I want to say. I want to go back to yeah. So let's talk about the failure because I want to go back to the um argument in the video that I mm-hmm. put together, and it's not you know airtight or anything, but. The way I've been thinking about things is I've been thinking uh, largely about the left after World War II, Um, just because that's when the Frankfurt School started to um, uh, really uh, emerge full with the Adorno side of the Frankfurt School. I mean, it goes before that, but um, uh, that's where those writings are from. Um, But also because uh, I think a lot of the assumptions – uh, of the left uh, today can be traced back to like the post World War II left. Um, so, like one of the assumptions was that Fordism and fascism had overcome capitalism. Yeah, you, that the contradictions within capitalism could be managed through a powerful state. That's in Marcuse. That's in. Uh, uh, CLR James, that's in, um, uh, actually, that's in almost all the Frankfurt School thinkers. Um, and it's what, what, um, what is in th- that assumption or the assumptions that there could no that assumption that the contradictions mm-hmm. within capitalism could be managed by a powerful state apparatus, that mm-hmm. the ex that the market was no longer disciplining or directing exchange or prices that the state had taken over was now in charge and that the contradictions within a a more entrepreneurial free market version of capitalism had been overcome. Now, Marcuse would look at that and say, and yet the working class is still exploited, but he would see it as a purely social or even psychological problem, a problem of the character of the working class. Um, and uh, CLR James came to similar kinds of conclusions, despite the fact that um, he believed that um, the Soviet Union was state capitalist. And even despite the fact that I think he ought to have, I mean, seen that there were economic contradictions that would limit the power of the state to really regulate society. Um, uh but, you know, the visions of this managed capitalist world were dystopian for most of the left, but they were nonetheless a version of what the earlier socialists would have thought was socialism. Um, so that's the first thing I, I, I noticed. And then the second thing is that as 
socialism, as that fall, it fell apart, as Fordism fell apart, so did the so-called really existing socialist states. And so then after that, you have this neoliberal period and you have a, a rejection of the state um, and a rejection of state power and a rejection of, of politics, uh, really. Uh, I mean, I'm skipping over the new left, which is really important, but then, well, so that's what rejection, that's, I'm sorry, a rejection of those things by whom? By, let's by say, the state and state power. By the left, no, by wh whoever was left to call themselves a radical left. That would be like, uh, well, the Crime Think and Z Magazine. And the okay, World so you're Social talking about Forum the kind of the, the, the anarchist, zeit, the rise, arrival of yeah. the anarchist zeitgeist. Yeah, if John, you will, uh, the guy who wrote others. Changing the World Without Taking Power, right. John Holloway. John Holloway. You know, and those yeah. types of people, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, and that, yeah, and that, totally. but that was not just like in the theoretical realm of the obscure left. It was also in the NGOs, and it was also sure. in the World World Social Forum, and then before that, uh, it had been what was setting up um, the anti WTO, anti globalization protests, sure. which saw itself as releasing the masses, you know, in opposition to the power structures that existed. And I, and I think and if I may interject to the left, yeah. I agree. I mean, I think we're in very we're in agreement about that kind of wing in that period. I think there's a lot of agreement across the left on that, which is a good place to be right now, I think. Um, but why? Why was the left suddenly represented by a set of NGOs and kind of like uh, crust punks in Portland? No offense, Doug. Yeah, uh, well, uh, I mean, so, I, many of the in the audience were influenced in some way, shape or form by those types of uh, those phenomenon. Um but, uh, well, but because we because it was the collapse. I mean, the, the historical working class and its and its institutions had been absolutely defeated um, and decimated. And so, you know, the, the left from, you know, the 1930s onward, it was a, a collectivist enterprise funded by dues money of, of, of everyday workers who then had, uh, you know, had skin in the game and vied over kind of um, politics and strategies within their own trade union. And of course, sometimes that went over to kind of like wage bargaining and, and too much emphasis on purchasing power and all the, all the other kind of liberal deformations of the, of the radical trade movement in the U.S. But a lot of times it also grounded a lot of really kind of radical and, and it held on to some of the gains, some of the more radical gains of the, so through the- Are you saying the, that in the seventies, the working class was defeated? And as, yeah, a, as neoliberalism yeah, took hold? Oh, so I would say the, the restructuring that the working class was defeated in- by by the, the the fact that that uh, World War Two happened, yeah, and, sure, sure, yeah. and that was yeah. also a massive mm -hmm. defeat of the working class. Because I agree with that. I agree with that. I mean, so yeah, I, I had Sam Gendon on on my show. Sorry for the plug uh, on mm -hmm. on DPS, and uh, he's a he's a longtime uh, kind of a mentor of mine, and obviously a co writer with my biggest mentor, Leo Panich, who passed away. And, and Gendon sort of corrected me. We're talking about neoliberalism. Is it dead or not? Um, I think it's going to be a banger episode if people want to check it out. But mm -hmm. uh, and he corrected me. He said, "No, no, no. Liberal uh, neoliberalism didn't start in the 1970s. It started in the 1940s because when you had the restructuring of 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 the American system of capitalism, um, it it baked in all of these imperatives in such a way that they only were only then fully un came unraveled in the 1970s. And so it wasn't a qualitatively different sort of thing. It was just the kind of completion of it." As uh, Adolf Reed Jr. has put it on, in, on many platforms, you know, neoliberalism is just regular old capitalism uh, without the working class in it, you know, in a, in a me as a meaningful kind of a capacious, powerful political collective actor. Um, and so I agree with you. I do agree with that for sure. But but that's just to say that 
that process of unraveling, you know, finished for a number of reasons, the restructuring of capitalist markets internationally and which disempowered labor. Suddenly, you know, we say, fuck you, boss, we're going on strike. And they say, fuck you back. We're shipping your jobs off to, to India. To, well, mm. They couldn't do India at the time to China, uh, wherever, um, Hong Kong, perhaps in the seventies and eighties. Um, you know, and so they just really lost a lot of their bargaining power where you're bargaining with someone and, and you, you presume, you know, that they're, it's in good faith and they won't shoot the hostage. And then the seventies and eighties through various fiscal and economic and supply chain, you know, uh, innovations. Finally, they were like, fuck it, we can shoot the hostage, you know, and, and they had to, there were imperatives to go after the working class in order to maintain the strength of the dollar internationally. You know, dollar seniorage is looked at like this, um, universal benefit for all Americans. And it's really a class blind kind of like, um, rad lib kind of analysis of like, oh, we privileged Americans. And in some sense on absolute terms, it's un, it's undoubted that we are relatively better off, but it also required that the, the, the dollar seniorage, the fact that the U S dollar is the store of value and it, it's the most stable, uh, store and in, in, in exchange sort of mechanism across global capitalism, the working class had to be defeated in order to retain that. And so we had to take it on the chin. We had to sacrifice ourselves for uh, the holy father of, of capital in the 70s. And so the WTO and all the rest of it that you rightly kind of um, criticize in your piece is, is, the, is the remnant uh, that left is a remnant of of a, of a kind of fight back against kind of corporate power and all the rest of the kind of expressions that emerged in the, that, that movement. Um, but without the traditional bastions of and not just like in terms of the politics that the working class, the trade radical trade unionists injected, but also like their resources, the resources that were democratized from the dues money from all workers that funded this enterprise, no matter how imperfect it was. Now we don't have that resource pool. Even today we don't. And now we're, we're reliant on NGOs and other foundations to fund in accordance with their priorities. Um, and, and now we have a left that's just been completely remade in the absence of a democratic kind of a, a resource pool of funds and ability to kind of, you know, uh, have our own kind of uh, imperatives in, in how this plays out. So that's my version of well, how that came about, I guess. I think I think that we may disagree, although I'm going to just grant that story to you because I know you're more uh, knowledgeable about the history of um, the trade union movement at that time than I am. But but um we may disagree uh, about some of that, but, but what sure. I would say is that um, taking this sort of the story I'm telling is a story of the socialist movement um, uh, having these opportunities for change that go wrong and that then having to cope with the aftermath of, of it and continually finding itself uh, sort of in a, at a, Going back, either going back, defeated, uh, de yeah, defeated, and going back to some other conception that they that at at one point had been overcome, or um, simply more and more lost and more and more irrational, more less mm -hmm. and less capable of thinking through its own history, less and less yeah. capable of having uh, uh, debates, having imposed imposing more and more. Uh, rigid taboos on itself, either in the form of sectarianism or, mm -hmm. uh, you know, b by being captured by the Democratic Party. And so to say that we made a mistake with Bernie Sanders is another way of saying we were defeated, that, that, that we have to look at the Sanders moment as a defeat, as a, 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 a try for power that was built out of this history of failure 
that went wrong and that the worst thing we can do right now is not look that square in the face and say, okay, yeah, we suffered another historic defeat. And we need to put this in the context of of maybe everything past 1919 or maybe everything past at least World War II. And, um, uh, or maybe we need to go back to 1848. But in any case, we really need to do some serious rethinking. And one of the ways to do that is to examine like what were the presuppositions before and how have they changed? How have our presuppositions changed? And I think right now, what we have as a baseline presupposition for most of the left is if it makes poor people's life easier, it's radical. If it doesn't, it doesn't. I don't think that's a, the, a bad uh, kind of moral stance to take. And it may not be wrong in terms of empowering the working class. But I do think that um, uh, how you try to make poor people's lives easier matters right and uh, to give an example this cares act um or no the infrastructure bill where there are uh, factions within the biden administration saying we need to make sure that communities of color um have the health care they need and we need to consider that health care in home care the work of uh, the care workers uh, and their wages all of that needs to be considered infrastructure Otherwise, you're privileging the white working class by focusing only on building bridges and roads and things like that. And we need to be able to step back and say, okay, let's let's grant that these communities of color are suffering. But let's also ask ourselves, why is it that what the only way to help them is to fund these uh, like six dozen NGOs? first it's a, it's before the, you get wages to these workers even you go it's a legacy of the greats it's the legacy of the so what you're reacting to there is is very well taken in my view but that you're talking about the legacy of the great society not the legacy of the new deal because right. i hold up the legacy of the new deal as something far more radical and far more tra- and, and, and attempt and a thwarted attempt that had a number of really odd bedfellows <laughs> in it i mean and, and it, it had to because this was the these these senators from these fucking disgusting abhorrent stains on humanity these senators that were like 90 years old these crotchety old bastards you know who who could, who had been from mississippi or wherever the fuck you know since you know 19 20 whatever 1909 or whatever uh you know they controlled these committee seats and nothing happened without their say so and so in order to get any of this stuff through you you had you ended up finding yourself with very strange bedfellows but with that being said there are a number of of really committed and revolutionary radical socialists that were involved in the new deal project as well and they were so my analysis of the great society that emerged with LBJ is that, you know, and this is very partial and maybe some historians can quibble with this, but I love this formulation. and I see it everywhere now is that when, when um, they were Kennedy staffers, these kind of sharp 20, 30 something year old Harvard grads, liberals from the Northeast, you know, they probably, you know, they, 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 they sympathize with the plight of the the African-Americans or whatever. They wouldn't have said that. But um, and, and, and they went into power and government to think tanks and all the rest of it from Harvard School of Government. And they uh, instituted they completely bastardized the, the, quote, shovel ready projects of the New Deal. And when LBJ was thrust into power, into office power, I think he's a dictator. The LBJ regime took over mm-hmm. and, uh, and with this, you know, the sudden assassination of Kennedy. 
uh, he relied on a lot of Kennedy staffers who who LBJ was a new dealer, you know, as as limited as he was in a lot of ways. He was ideologically a new dealer, at least economically. And he's like, break out the shovels, boys. And then he drops some end bombs because he was a racist piece of shit. But but, uh, you know, uh, but, you know, the staffers were like, whoa, 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 whoa. We don't do that anymore. That's that's old fashioned. Let me tell you about these community action programs. Right. So so LBJ is like, let's dig some fucking holes and pay some people to do it. Get, you know, call up the trade union heads. We got to we got to make some jobs here. And they said, "Mm, but what if we didn't, though? But what if we didn't? But what if we just created these community action programs and and attached a bunch of strings to them, uh, painted them with a kind of like a Kerner post Kerner commission uh, veneer of, uh, you know, um, liberal values and then, and then that became the regime of how we address the poors and the blacks in society, right? And and that's really what you're talking about, rightfully so. You're criticizing greatly, and but I think that I think it's worth, and it, historians might take me to task on this. I think it is worth making that distinction between okay. the more radical um, attempt to remake and refound institutions in the economy and the way that we make things and the way that we produce things from. The great society, which is just sort of like uh, uh, gr- various gravy trains that come with strings attached and, and, and ways to m- manipulate people and, and thwart uh, possible revolutionary consciousness from arising. Yeah, I mean, in this particular case of the infrastructure bill, it seems to me obvious that not only are you couching the justification for the spending on healthcare in racialist terms that are mm-hmm. seem designed to uh, inflame the majority of the population. Like you're saying, we don't want to benefit white workers. Um, You know, that's, that's not a way to, you want to talk about what you do want to do, not who you don't want to help. Right. To start with. Mm -hmm. And, and the the second thing is, I don't think for a moment that those care workers and, and in threatened communities of color are going to be receiving even as good a wage as McDonald's is going to be offering now. For, through this effort, right? You know, like I don't mm-hmm. think their their the improvements there are going to be really substantial because the the spending is going to be going uh, in a million different directions. Only one piece of which will be towards actually paying workers. The the right. you know creating uh, oversight committees and you know who who knows what all else will be called infrastructure in this right. process. And, and so it seems to me clear that what this is, is, I mean, I feel like I'm sounding like a Republican here, but it seems like this is just pork, just progressive liberal pork. For, well, because, you know, because what's happening is, I mean, as you have to ask yourself, why are we getting this infrastructure bill with, which had some interesting and kind of exciting uh, possibilities inside of it, which is a restructuring of the economy for green jobs, which could open up space for labor militancy. And of course, fighting, uh, facing down, you know, I don't know, apocalyptic climate change, which is something we should probably care a little bit about, although I'm not convinced that Biden really does. But, uh, you know, we should have no faith in, in, in those that set of leaders to solve this for us. But um, better than Trump, perhaps. But but why are we getting this kind of a pork filled, uh, you know, um, infrastructure bill um, rather than card check, rather than the pro act, um, rather than the, you know, these latest efforts, which have been squashed, thanks to Joe Manchin, you know, refusal to uh, abolish the filibuster rather than, you know, uh, completely revamping and, and shoring up our, our voting rights and our voting system. Um, because the infrastructure bill maps on to the prerogatives of 
a certain fraction of the the ruling class, uh, i.e., you know, those led by the the, the prerogatives imperatives of, of those like the the um, the enlightened business class, like say the business roundtable. You know, Jamie Dimon, right, the, the CEO director of J.P. Morgan Chase, is the head of the business roundtable, and and these are the, the, the speaking of thought leaders that we joked about at the beginning of the series. You know, we're not the thought leaders; it's fucking Jamie Dimon. You know, mm-hmm. he and his cronies and in the business roundtable and and um. The, the Chamber of Commerce and uh, I'm forgetting the uh, manufacturers uh, uh, organization. The, so something oh, NAM, National Association for Manufacturers. Those are the, their prerogatives are the ones that are being um, emphasized and implemented in this infrastructure package. And they they understand the danger. They understand it as as the as the 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 kind of industrialists in the North in the 1930s understood the danger. Uh, on the one hand, the New Deal was going to make them possibly insanely rich. And more importantly, it was going to ground a form of capitalism that they would ultimately be able to get their filthy hands into and enrich themselves through through sort of making the pie bigger. Right. I'd say I've got a slice of the pie. There's a, there's a couple ways to go about that. You can try to make your slice bigger on the same small pie or you can try to make the pie bigger so that your slice is infinitely bigger and then maybe you can get some more you know after that um and so these kind of um progressive innovative business leaders if you know bastardize the english language for a moment are seeing an opportunity to refound and reground um manufacturing and particularly in production in the united states in a way that they all know that it's 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 endangered I mean, you know, they know that the stock market, they, you know, you, you listen to these people and they have this a similar critique on the surface that we do of the, of the, the economy. You know, stock market's a bubble. We don't make anything of significance in the United States anymore. And we fucking should, uh, you know, we're not, the state doesn't lead innovation in the way that it should. And climate change is really fucking scary. Cause I have a couple of, vaca- you know, have a couple <laughs> vacation properties on an Island somewhere that threaten to be flooded in 30 years. If we don't get this shit under, under in check and, 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 and they probably want, you know, they, they might have a gay son or a, or a gay nephew or whatever. And they're probably more enlightened and liberal about that stuff. So they want to see a, a version of the Biden project come to fruition. As long as it doesn't threaten their bottom line or their class power. And you see that playing out when when J- Jamie Dimon, a business roundtable uh, leader, uh, sees the price tag on this thing and says, whoa, 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 you're, you're raising our taxes. I want to see an itemized list on where this is all going before I give my money to this to this venture. And so they're able to they're able to play both sides. And manipulating those prerogatives, and so yeah. Anyway, I mean that's that's an aside, and I apologize uh, to, no, that's to fine, you and no. the, the, the listeners for <laughs> the link wanna, there. I, yeah, but that's I, why I, we're getting an infrastructure bill, right? right Rather but, than but, card check. Yeah, but so one of the other reasons the we're getting uh, this card is the terrain check. on which we have to play. Yeah, I know, but one of the other reasons why we're not getting the card check and uh, universal health care and all the rest is because Sanders lost, and and. I think that even if he had won, he would have not been able to accomplish most of his agenda. Um, I agree with that. He, he would have been uh, smashed by the Republicans and, uh, you know, the Democrats. His own party would have become more reactionary than it is now under Biden, probably, in order to 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 stop him. Um, and I think he knew that. And I don't know. I mean. Uh, I'm not sure if I agree with that last part. I do think that there, there would have been a, there would have been a set of accommodations inside the Democratic Party. But you're not wrong to say that, yeah, the the the, the capitalist aligned kind of um, prize fighters inside the Democratic Party, particularly in the Senate, uh, would have opposed him on on most of his more radical policies. Absolutely, yeah. there's no question. Yeah, and and Adolph Reed said that the smart Sanders supporters never thought he could win. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, yeah. and, and that, that wasn't why they were involved. And then, sure. So at that point I say, okay, so we better have a really well worked out theory and understanding of why losing is worth it. Why, mm-hmm. why we are supporting someone who we expect to be clobbered, not only by the Republicans, but by their own party in the, you know, twice. And, and, and we also ought to examine just what that full, full agenda was and was it worth losing for? And, uh, uh, that's, so that's, was the point of that. Sure. essay. the next part, the thing that was going to come next was an examination of the American technocrats, left-wing technocrats from the middle of the 20th mm-hmm. century or, or earlier, early 20th century technocrats. Yeah, that'd be fascinating. Because they are the, um, they are more radical by far than some than the New Deal Democrats or the Sanders Democrats because they actually said things like, "We have to eliminate uh, the profit motive altogether from all." They, they wanted to get rid of the market. They wanted to set up systems of production based on evaluating the uh, energy needs of the population and get the food and and other resources to different parts of the population based on need production right. for use i mean um i'm not sure if i but what and so what's fascinating about the technocrats is that they wanted that and they also were against centralization and for localism and for uh, uh, a stepping away from a technocratic or a technological life in the end. It, but so the examining that history and seeing how it tra- maps on to the vision of the old socialists from before World War II um, and, and this idea of one big factory and, and why, where it breaks down is what I want to do next. Um, but I guess before I can get there, I feel as though I have to say, look, reforming capitalism for the sake of reforming capitalism uh you know supporting the left-wing and democratic party because you just not as a revolutionary step towards something else but just for its own sake um and failing to and 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 having these positions which are locked down like you know if it's a trade union it is good that kind of uh you know those kinds of things have to be put aside on the other hand well, what I have to understand is just because I'm creating this interesting story and trying to figure things out doesn't mean someone who with a little more knowledge isn't going to come along and problematize my ver- vision. But the, but my main point is not to castigate people for having supported, you know, I supported Bernie Sanders, right? You know, mm-hmm. I, I'm not, I'm just saying we need to be able to right. work together to think through our mistakes. And, and it's a, it's and a worthwhile question. If I may interject, I think that, um, now I, you know, this you're putting me in a strange position, Doug, because I am not like I am. I'm, I'm kind of I get a lot of shit on my program and, and just for what I've done over the over the years, which is kind of being like a little bit of a cynic and poo pooing on everybody's party and being overly, you know, uh, critical. And so you're you're like forcing me into the position of like the Pollyanna or the the rah rah <laughs> cheerleader, which is very very. I'm not a joiner, Doug. I'm just not. I'm kind of uh, you know, I've always kind yeah. of a, a bit of a loner, and I go my own way when I feel the need mm-hmm. to, and I'm comfortable there. Um, but and yet, like I think that. I don't agree that that your title that you know Ber- supporting Bernie Sanders was a mistake. I don't agree that's the same thing as saying that he was defeated. Because I think in 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 and again I'll, I'll prove you know you're right. It non- is. I- it's, it's not the same not, thing. It, uh, and I, th- yeah. I think making that distinction is important. And here's why. Because to me, uh, I'll prove my non-Pollyanna uh, 
uh, credentials here by suggesting, uh, by talking about a position where I actually went against the grain on this, whereas to say that sometimes you do, you should pick your battles and in, in, in losing, um, you know, um, having a, a, like a, a good loss or to whatever is, it's not always right. The right thing to do. For example, Bessemer, for example, you know, the Amazon, the failed Amazon, uh, defeated, I should say, defeated Amazon, uh, unionization drive in those, uh, warehouses. Um, I'm not, I'm of the belief that that was a, a, a bad tactical choice. And now people say, Oh, but the workers wanted it. Sure. They did. A lot of workers want a lot of things, a lot in a lot of places. Uh, and we don't throw the weight, the money and the publicity behind all of those campaigns. We choose strategically. And I'm on very much on team Jane McAlevey here and her analysis of Bessemer and why perhaps maybe that wasn't the best choice. Uh, same thing with Operation Dixie, right? The, the infamous failed Operation Dixie, which allegedly showed to generations that you could not you, you could not unionize the South in the post-World War II era. Uh, um the late historian uh, Judah Stein has written very um, in a very compelling way has argued that Operation Dixie didn't fail because the South couldn't be unionized. It failed because, uh, you know, working in these lily white um, textile mills in North Carolina was a terrible tactical maneuver. They should have been in the steel sector in the deep South. Uh, where that that those drives might have been uh, you know supported by a multiracial steel workers uh, uh, sector, so so it's always about tactical choices and we we have to we have to choose our battles and I, I totally I mean I fundamentally agree with what you're saying a lot here I think that's what you're trying to emphasize always choose our battles wisely here you can't just you know, unions good uh, minimum wage good like it's just yeah. it's thoughtless and it's just it's mindless and just I dumb, just think right? we need you know, to like, reconceive um, of socialism. Before we can sure. make tactical decisions, right? And, and I agree. But, but, out, yeah, go ahead. But, I, but but again, going back to what we're up against and what we're actually trying to do here, I can't possibly fathom a world where that we're not better off today, uh, having waged the campaigns that fell under the sign of the Sanders wave, the Sanders movement. I mean, I just you know, I mean, I just this is anecdotal, sure, and maybe I'm in a liberal city here in Richmond and Virginia, and and I, I just I run into more people nowadays who just obviously in, knee, in a knee-jerk, obvious sense, sort of identify as some kind of socialist. And now, are they Marxist? Are they dyed in the wool? Like, no. But but they but they thoroughly have, they have a real kind of moral, ethical belief in, 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 in what we're trying to project. They are not, you know, um, bamboozled by the dictates of, of capitalist logic in the way that they were 10, you know, 20 years ago, not even five years ago. And these are massive victories. To say nothing of the, the, uh, the real, you know, again, this is hard for me, Doug, because I'm not a cheerleader. I'm a critic by nature. Uh, but th- people knocked on doors and are getting real about the demands of doing politics and, the, and sure, the limitations of their former uh, former liberal beliefs, even if they ha- haven't come far enough along the path that we would like them to. Um, they're coming around. And, and 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 I'd love to know, actually, who who was uh, speaking about the infrastructure bill and the way that you're talking to, because, you know, I was I was as critical as anybody in 2017, 18 about race essentialism, which is a sort of a turn of phrase that I've repurposed. It's been called race reductionism by Toure Reed and Adolf Reed. People are much smarter than I am. Uh, but, you know, I've been I've gone hard on race reduction, but I've, I've seen people like AOC, who's like usually a pretty bad race reductionist. Uh, correct people and say, no, 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 wait a minute. You're talking about like, but the white working class, you know, we can't just worry about them. Like in what, in, in what world is, is this element of the working class this, only white? This so, is so a you're, Washington Post you're, reporting on it. You know, it was like, yeah. 
Uh, yeah. Some, but some inside some, the Biden administration some say, say yeah, yeah, right. yeah. yeah. Yeah, but yeah. but and uh, it's disgusting, uh, and we should definitely attack it. But what you're seeing, though, is you're seeing a, a left of some kind, as imperfect and contradictory as it is. You're seeing a left learn in action on the fly as we go, and that doesn't mean it's going to be up, up, and away from here. We can definitely lose our way, and this whole thing could collapse five, ten years from now. So you're you're you're. It's. I mean, your points are all very well taken in terms of we should really stop, breathe. And, and reassess. I'm just not sure that I'm as ready to discount the gains um, and the development of the project as you are at this point. Thanks for watching this Zero Books video. If you enjoyed it, subscribe to this channel and click on the notifications bell so that you'll be alerted whenever we release a new video. You should also consider supporting us on Patreon. Our patrons get access to our Inside Zero Books podcast every week and can get access to the Zero Books Book Club and help us to continue making online content from the left.